0: Good morning, Landmark Church. My name's Matthew Mayer for that one and only new person that we invited to the church this new year. Come on, church, where are we at? Invite your family members, invite your friends, invite your neighbors, invite your coworkers. They need the Lord, and perhaps they're waiting for you to ask them to come through these doors. And we, of course, turn our attention to those that are watching online from all over the country and the world, really. It's an honor for the trust that you've it to us to speak into your life. Can you help me appreciate those who have really held down the fort in my absence, but more than that, as we announced that we wouldn't be having midweek service because a team was going to be taking apart the entire sanctuary and rewiring it to be more effective in what we do technologically. And that team was spearheaded by Kyle Johnson. And of course, amongst many names, I see Georgie Harmon on the, Light table. Thank you, my brother. Thank you guys for dedicating and selflessly serving this week. You should have seen the sanctuary. As of yesterday, it looked like a bomb had exploded. So the team was in here putting it back together. How about Pastor Terrence Sikoriak? Thank you, my brother. Obviously leaving a man who loves the Lord and his word In my absence, I was confident that you would be very well fed out of the book of Proverbs with the word of your year, but I think it should be the word of all of our years, diligence, right? What does it take to be diligent Christians, stewards of God's word economy? And of course, as ambassadors, we had the honor this past two weeks to send a team to South Africa, and as you can see, I've been demolished by the South African sun, underestimated it surely. We went out on a weekend and had a soccer outreach in one of the local villages there. And we bust our children from the children's home, about maybe 60 of them, leaving behind the toddlers to participate in the soccer clinic. Did not know what to expect expect from the local village. And on day number one, like ants, coming out of nowhere to a picnic blanket, the local village, we saw over 160 kids on day number one, and then well over 200 kids on day number two, where the soccer was nothing more than a leverage ultimately to love on and introduce to these kids from these remote villages, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Our team did phenomenal. We will be giving a greater update with details and video next Sunday. So I wanna save time for next Sunday to do just that. I wanna assure you that the team that went like the body of Christ should each team member having their own unique gifting contributed to the cause of Christ in their own unique way. And it was a beautiful picture to see how the body of Christ works when each of us are in our giftings, doing what God has called us to do. And I think that will be the theme of not only the message this morning, it will be the theme of 2024, as we will stand on the faithfulness of God. And I'm gonna challenge you to come out of your comfort zones because there's a gift that God has given you. And he wants you to use it to edify his body and he wants to use your gift for his glory. And I think there's more capacity in all of us, and with diligence, if we give God more space in our lives, our marriages, our families, in this ministry, we are going to see him do marvelous things, and we're gonna report on those marvelous things. So, speaking of reporting on marvelous things, we expect you to be here this Wednesday for our State of the Church meeting. There's a lot of new updates. There's a lot of things to be thankful for, which we will certainly do, but there's a lot of things that we're looking forward to, and we're gonna invite you into those things, and we look forward to God's faithfulness showing up Yet again. With that being said, I don't know if I introduced myself. My name is Matthew Mayer. I'm one of the ministers here. We are in the book of 1 Timothy as the Lord would will it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there in advance. We've entered into chapter 3. The first seven verses of chapter 3 deal with the qualifications or the biblical requirements. Of the church's overseers, the elders or pastors, some translations would say bishop. The next several verses, which we will cover this morning, verses 8 to 13 is where we'll be, you can look at them right now, are going to cover the qualifications for deacons. And I can assure you, regardless of those two offices, God might not call you to those offices. But most certainly, the qualifications or characteristics that make up the office of elder and the office of deacon are absolutely in parallel with the characteristics that make up the Christian. So make no mistake, as I'm talking about a specific office in the church, the personal application must be made for your personal Christian walk. Would you pray with me as we ready our hearts to receive the word of God? And we'll begin. So, Father in heaven, we do stand on your faithfulness. Without your faithfulness, we cannot stand. Without your grace, we do not have access. But because of your son, Jesus, the chief shepherd, the savior, who came, dwelt amongst us, tabernacled with us, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, It's in his faithfulness that we stand. It's with thanksgiving that we praise you for saving us. I pray your salvation would be realized in this place within your people. I pray the spirit would begin to sanctify our lives, set us apart for your work. I pray your word comes alive and like a scalpel does surgery within our souls. Bring to the surface and into the light anything that we are keeping in the dark. Forgive us of our sins, our trespasses. Give us the mercy to forgive those who have slighted us, hurt us, trespassed against us. Cause us to be people of mercy, while at the same time cause us to be people of truth. Unwilling to compromise, not a centimeter, not an inch. God, give us an appetite to study your word, to show ourselves approved. Would we be diligent, diligent workers, sent forth into a field of faith to administer your aid, your word, your spiritual medicine, the antidote to the sin sick soul? Would we be bold? in this year ahead. Would we be unashamed of the gospel of your son Jesus? So I pray now, it's nothing more than an underservant to the chief shepherd. Give me clarity of thought. Give me wisdom from heaven to lead your people. Continue to put your hand of blessing, protection and provision upon us. We will continue to look to you We will continue to praise you. Thank you for what you did in South Africa. We pray a blessing upon those children and the villagers and everyone we interacted with. Would seeds of truth be watered? Would they grow into trees of righteousness? Would you bless the work that is being done there? Thank you for the state of the church. Thank you for the work that you are doing and the work that you will complete. It's in the name of Jesus I pray and plead. Amen. Let's study. Timothy is a pastoral epistle
1: written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And all of the letters intended in the issue of life, the content transcends and applies the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for Church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the Church's culture is a spiritual significance. From the qualifications of others and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the Gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge.
0: That's the statement that the church pure the people bolder the gospel the good news clear the book of first timothy has been a perfect template for life the christian life as we live it out as we walk out our testimony it's been a perfect template and of course very instructional for the governance of the church how the church is to be governed. Jesus is the head. We are part of his body. The body has many members. Each member contributes to the body. From the same head, each of us have unique, separate roles, but inseparable from the overall function. We know in our own bodies when the smallest member is hurt. Perhaps you stub a toe and even just the stub of a toe is able to keep you up at night. Every other member of your body is saying, I'm hurting because you're hurting. Likewise and conversely, when one part of the body does a good thing, the entire body celebrates. I often use the soccer analogy because as a soccer player, In my past, it would have been quite foolish to see a soccer player with his foot score a goal and for the hands not to cooperate. In fact, be angry with the foot for scoring the goal, but that's not how it goes. You see the foot score the goal and you see the hands rejoice. Is that not how the body of Christ should conduct herself? From the same mind. So it's the mind of God through the word of God that we look. The first seven verses of chapter three, I'm not going to do a review because the next several verses in dealing with the deacons, which I will define shortly, is going to cover those characteristics. The only unique difference between the two lists is the ability to teach. And you'll find that in the first seven verses. The elders' characteristics are behavioral. They're characterological. The deacon's characteristics are behavioral. They're characterological. They're spiritual. The only difference between the two is that the elder is to have a working knowledge of the doctrines of the church and they are to communicate them. In verses 8 to 13, we deal with deacons. The idea behind being a deacon is one who serves, one who attends to a service. The idea is even a waiter or waitress serving a table, think about that. They are at your service when they are waiting on you. Now interestingly, when it comes to serving, everyone is willing, are we not? Some are willing to serve and jump right in, while others are willing to let them serve. But that's the truth in my experience. Some are willing to serve, others willing to let others serve. But the goal is to have every one of us serving the body of Christ. A survey of the entire New Testament will yield these two truths. The first is all Christians are called to be servants. No one can escape it. If we name the name of Christ, every one of us is a servant. In fact, all of the writers in the New Testament in different ways identified themselves as bond servants. Servants by choice, not by force. Servants who were bound to their master Jesus. Every Christian is called to be a servant and it's a term that the world diminishes. It's derogatory, I will not be a servant. And yet the Bible elevates this term because Jesus himself said, I've come, not to be served, God in the flesh. I've come to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. In Matthew chapter 20, we see Jesus flipping this hierarchy on its head where the world, the Gentile world, lords their authority over their followers, over their subjects. And Jesus said, hey, if you wanna be great in my kingdom, the great one amongst us is the one who serves all. Think about that. Wait, what? The greatest amongst us is not the most gifted one. The greatest amongst us is not the richest one. The greatest amongst us is not the popular one. No, the greatest amongst us is the serving one. Jesus said in John chapter 13, after he washed his disciples' feet, that he set an example. He said, if I'm not the master and teacher, you are. And if I'm the master and the teacher who has done this, should you not follow my example? Then he said this, blessed are you if you do these things. Anybody wanna be blessed this morning? Then we should do these things. All Christians are called to be servants. Again, another survey of the New Testament, you will see that this is also true. If all Christians are called to be servants, no one can escape it, then some Christians are servants to a calling. And that's what we're looking at. Some Christians are servants to a calling. Now, let me explain that. Some of us have a compulsion given by God to serve in the midst of a calling. That's what an overseer is. They are servants to a calling. They can't escape it. I said it, it's not a good option for me to be an overseer or a bishop or a pastor or a shepherd. It's the only option for me. And I am a servant underneath that calling. Likewise, the church's leaders, Allah, a.k.a. deacons, are servants to a calling. And we're going to look at these verses. And I want you to be encouraged this morning that when God calls you to do this work, he will also work in you to fulfill the call. He's not going to leave you abandoned. He's not going to neglect you. According to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete that work. For some of us, he may have started that work, and we're the ones that have departed from the work. And the delay is based on whether or not we wanna get back on the potter's wheel to let him continue to do that work. The point would be you can't escape the calling that God has placed on your life. Now, of course, when we run from the calling, there are consequences, and I can speak very candidly about running from the call of God on my life, and there were consequences for delaying the inevitable. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, regardless where you are this morning, young or old, it's time to get in the game. Church, the days are short. The darkness is only getting more blatant. It's time for each of us to get into the game. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13 read in their entirety. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, the Greek word for deacon is diaconos. Diaconos. Similar to the word that is given for overseers, presbyteros, episkopos. Very similar words that deal with an oversight to a ministry. This idea behind being a diaconos is a servant to the ministry. It's one who would wait a table. It's one who would attend to a menial task. The office of deacon seems to originate in the book of Acts, Acts chapter six, verses one through six, which shows us a description, if you will, of the origination of the office of deacon. What happens in Acts chapter six, the apostles are confronted by a need. A complaint arises between Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews over their widows. And the Greek-speaking Jews made a claim that their widows were being neglected in the grand scheme of the work, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, their widows were being favored. So they bring the complaint to the 12, the 12 being the apostles, and it says this. Now don't miss the details. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And I can imagine if that statement was said today, the people would accuse the overseers, the elders, the pastors, for being neglectful to the needs of the ministry. But notice it's reverse. They're saying, we're not to leave the praying and the administration of God's word. We're not to stop what we're doing, this compulsion and calling to tend to other needs. There are those amongst us that need to be raised up to help shoulder the load of the body of Christ. Let me continue to read. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, or Timon, if you have the Lion King as your filter, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Verse seven, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I don't believe you get to verse seven and eight if the overseers Stop from praying and stop administering the word to tend to some of the other needs of the church. I believe it throws it all out of whack. I believe there is no growth in the body if we're not in our gifting. And the point is there were those amongst the multitude that needed to be identified, raised up, and appointed to wait tables and the dispute was solved and the church grew. This is a template. This is where we look to when we say, what is a deacon? Verse eight tells us, likewise. Likewise is a word that connects us to the previous verses about elders. Deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Again, I say, even though this is a list for the deacons, it's applicable to everyone that names Christ as their king and savior. The first characteristic is reverence or seriousness. The word is dignified. It means this individual is respectable. They live in a manner worthy of respect. Doesn't mean they're always serious or they don't have a sense of humor. It simply means they're serious about the things of God. They're serious about the faith. They're serious about seeing the church healthy. This individual is reverent. They're not double-tongued, interestingly, double-tongued as opposed to singular in tongue. You've heard expressions like they're two-faced, they're a hypocrite, they're a mask wearer. This idea behind having two tongues it simply means we say one thing to one person And we say the opposite thing or a different thing to another person. We're two tongued. This individual, this deacon, this man or this woman is singular in word, they're consistent with the words they speak, they are trustworthy. They keep their word because they are serious about God's word, and those of us that are serious about God's word will absolutely keep our word. Now, the only way to have an undivided tongue, the only way to not be double-tongued, the only way, there's only but one, to have an undivided tongue is if you have an undefiled heart. And that's what Jesus said, he said, out of your mouth, Speaketh the heart. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, specifically, it says, you know what comes out of your heart? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. All of these are in the heart, the defiled heart, and they come forth out of your mouth. And that's what makes us double-tongued. Saying one thing to one person, saying something else to another person. Jesus needs to purify our hearts. Now thinking through double-tongued again, the imagery that came immediately was the serpent or a snake. Did you ever think about why a snake's tongue is forked? I just think that's appropriate considering the fall. I I believe that imagery of the serpent in the garden and becoming a snake on their belly is a perfect picture of the father of lies, and we're never more like the father of lies and his forked tongue than when we have a double tongue. This person is serious and reverent about their faith. They're not double-tongued, and of course, they're not given to much wine. Again, this is the same qualification for the elder. It means not long at the bottle, but it's not just wine. And In case you think that this idea behind wine was just grape juice, that'd be a ridiculous prohibition for a leader of the church. Not given to too much grape juice. Don't you dare be drinking too much grape juice. No, they had fermented wine. There was problems with water. The water was contaminated, so it was not uncommon for them to have wine at their disposal, and most likely, a deacon or a servant of the church would go from house to house To house and a sign of hospitality upon you entering my home would be to pour you a glass of wine. Now, how dangerous would it be to represent the church of Jesus Christ, to be making rounds from house to house and have a glass of wine in each house and you're given over to wine. And then you become double tongued and then you lose all dignity. Are you seeing this? It's speaking not just of wine, it's speaking of anything that would have mastery over your life, any substance, any habit, anything. And that's why I love what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, all things are lawful for me. I am that free in Christ. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the mastery of anything. Nothing is going to take the sobriety of my mind from making sound and serious decisions. This person is not greedy for money. Of course, that is a non-negotiable. Sometimes the deacons were tasked with counting the money or handling the resources of the ministry. And of course, you don't wanna put somebody in place who has an appetite for greed. This person is only mastered by Christ. Therefore, whether it's substances or addictions, or the things of this world. Later on in chapter six, when we get there in 2027, we're gonna learn that the love of money is the root of all evil, not money. God has given some of you in this fellowship the gift to make a lot of money, to possess resources, and the humility to not allow those resources to possess you and yet to be kingdom builders, to be good stewards of what God has trusted to you because you don't have a love for it, and you constantly guard your heart against the things of this world. This person cannot have greed in their heart. Now, verse nine, awesome verse. It's hard to understand until you break it down, but verse nine, holding the mystery of the faith With a pure conscience. Now, a few words to consider. Let me start from the back of the verse. Pure, it's the word sincere, or in Latin, sincera, or without wax, okay? Having a pure, unaltered heart. Without wax, of course, in the days where they would sell different types of pottery, And a broken vessel would be altered or covered by wax. And they would paint the wax. So you would purchase the pottery thinking it was complete, whole, unaltered. And then you would get home and you would place it perhaps in the sun. And the heat of the sun would melt the wax, exposing the broken state of the vessel You know why I love that? Because a lot of us can put on a lot of makeup, spiritually speaking, and cover up the cracks in our life. And sometimes God allows some heat to expose those fractures. And I thought I had a sincere heart until what was exposed and what came out of me was contrary to the word of God. And the Lord wants to give me a pure heart and conscience, conscience, two words, with knowledge. What knowledge? Moral knowledge, spiritual knowledge, biblical knowledge, having a pure conscience so the word of God can live in your conscience. How do you do that? You hold the mystery of the faith. Mystery? Yeah, it's the Greek word, musterion. It's a word that denotes something that was previously hidden, but has since been revealed. So it's not something you can't know as a Christian. It's something that in the Old Testament, it was hidden. And at the right time, in the right way, the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, ready, revealed it. And that's why this list of mysteries, those that are Jewish and have a working knowledge of the Old Testament, these things don't register to them. Yeah, there's a veil over their eyes until the Spirit lifts that veil. These mysteries for the New Testament believer and the church, these are the things the Holy Spirit has revealed by which the religious mind can't understand. For example, the word mystery is used 27 times in the New Testament. And it doesn't only refer to one thing. Jesus talked about in Matthew 13, 11, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he came to unveil them. Remember, they were waiting for a physical, literal, political kingdom to be established and Christ was like, no, the kingdom is here because the king is here and there's no kingdom without a king and there's no king without a kingdom and the kingdom of God is inside of you. Are you understanding? That's the mystery that Christ revealed. Paul would use that word in description of what we call the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 51, so when somebody says to you, there's no reference of the rapture in scripture, you say it's because it's a mystery that was later revealed. And the apostle Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but in the twinkling of an eye. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Paul also talked about the gospel being opened up to the Gentile world as a mystery. The Jews were like, that was was blasphemy to the Jew. They couldn't even think of a world where God would save the Gentiles. And that's where Paul's like, no, that's the mystery that has been revealed in its time. Ephesians chapter three, verses three to six. Paul also talked about the union of a husband and a wife as the picture of Christ and his church as a, fill in the blank, a mystery, a mystery. That's Ephesians chapter five, verse 32. And finally, Paul talked about Christ being inside of us as a mystery that the Spirit of God would live inside of us? Yeah, Colossians 1, 27, the hope of glory, Christ inside of you. Yeah. Holding the mystery of the faith. One more series of verses, 1 Corinthians chapter four, verses one to two, Paul would write this, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Everything I just said. Are you stewarding the mysteries of God as they're revealed in the scriptures? Are you stewarding them in such a way that it's derived from a pure conscience, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience? Moreover, verse two, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. If I were to summarize all the characteristics of these individuals, the elders, the deacons, and every Christian alike, to be found faithful, trustworthy? Can God trust you with his word? Can he trust you with his gifts? Can he trust you with his resources, knowing that you're going to handle them with maturity? In other words, this person who holds the mysteries of the faith with a pure conscience, there is no separation between their doctrine and their duty. There is no separation between how they believe and how they behave. There's a gap that is being ever closed because of their pursuit of Christ, because of sanctification, and I I said it in the beginning, the only difference between the elders and the deacons is the ability to teach. Not that deacons can't teach, not that Christians don't have the gift to communicate and teach, but the elders' responsibility is to articulate and rightly handle the word of God so that the church can be healthy So, how does the deacon teach? The deacon teaches with their life. The Christian speaks a billion sermons in a lifetime. No, you don't get up on stage. No, you don't spend your week preparing messages, cross referencing resources, reading commentaries, listening to other ministers exegete the text no you don't do that you live out your sermon because there's no separation between the doctrine that you believe and the duty by which you behave that's the sermon that the world outside of these walls needs to see see no teaching verbally but teaching with your life visually interestingly if I say it like this and then I'll teach it Telling is not teaching until you practice what you're preaching. Telling is not teaching until you practice what you're preaching. Many of us can tell people about our faith, but because there's a separation between how we live it and how we say it, we're not teaching them anything about our faith. We're hypocrites, we're double-tongued, we're two-faced. When we close the gap and from a pure conscience hold to the mysteries of the faith that have been unveiled and revealed in the Holy Spirit of God, we then speak our testimony and teach and tell because we're practicing what we're preaching. We are, at times, the only Bible that other people will ever pick up and read. Your life is. Anybody tired of hypocritical Christianity? I'm not saying perfection. One of your pastors will be the first to tell you it's not about being perfect, It's about being perfected. And when we fall, fail, and make mistakes, we're the first to own them and bring them to the light and then learn from them. That's what it means to be a Christian. Verse 10, but let these also first be tested. Of course, before you would place somebody in a position of leadership, you would Test them, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. If I was to tell you how this is actually translated in the Greek, it says this. First test them, and when blameless, then place them in these offices. Blamelessness, like the elders, it means no one can bring an accusation that will be substantiated by evidence to find your life guilty There might be charges, there might be accusations brought, but your life is transparent and open so that when it comes, it doesn't stick. That's what the word blameless means, and every Christian is called to be above reproach or blameless. Timothy, as Paul's writing to him, remember, was a son in the faith to Paul. And Paul would write to the church in Philippi that he's sending Timothy to them. He I can't find anybody like-minded, Paul, who has served with me the way this spiritual son has done. Paul's in prison, and he's checking on the health of the Philippians, and he's sending Timothy. And one of the things he says of Timothy in Philippians 2, 19 to 22, he says this. You ready? For you know his proven character. In other words, I'm giving him the task to serve the church because he's been tested. Not only can faith that has not been tested not be trusted, but a life that has not been tested cannot be trusted. All throughout the word of God, including Joseph, In the book of Genesis, he, of course, would become the prime minister in Egypt, second in power to the Pharaoh himself, but not first without being tested. Where do we find the testing of God in Joseph's life? Could it be the classroom was in session the moment his brothers betrayed him? and sold him as a slave, as a servant, before he would rule God's people, before he would have authority, God had to test him in the low places, in the dark places, to see if he was mature, if he was responsible enough to one day maintain the authority that would be entrusted to him. This is how God works. How about Moses? 40 years he spent in the palace in Egypt, did you know that? As a son to the Pharaoh, as a prince. And then 40 years in the backside of the desert where God would test him so that for the final 40 years of his life he would be sent back to the palace where it all began to lead his people as a servant leader with authority that God gave into the Promised Land. Are you understanding the rhythms of God? How about David, King David, anointed at age 15, would not take the throne until age 30, 15 years of testing him. Hey, I wanna place something before you. I would encourage you to audio book it. I love reading a good book, but sometimes audio versions speak volumes. And the book that I would encourage you to download immediately, and it's a short read, is entitled The Tale of Three Kings. The Tale of Three Kings. Please, do yourself a diligent service and listen to this book, The Tale of Three Kings, and how God works in our hearts to make us diligent, selfless servants that have to keep Absalom and Saul away to maintain the integrity of David. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said a famous saying, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. Right? Translation? If we can't be counted faithful when no one's watching, faithful with the small tasks. Interestingly, so many people, they want the limelight. They want the big stage. They want the podium. They want... The pulpit. I'm using this because it's before us every Sunday. I'm just using that as an example. People want that. And I remember when I first got out of prison and the Lord was very gracious to allow me opportunity to travel and speak. And my wife and I visited Dr. James Dobson in Colorado. We did an interview that you can still listen to. And we were just humbled that God would use us that way. And I remember hearing a lot of naysayers in the community talking about how I didn't deserve the platform that I was on. And of course, they've been in work and ministry their entire lives. And of course, they think that I shouldn't be the one at that particular position. And as I thought about it, of course, I never held held any animosity or bitterness in my heart because of what God had tested in me in a dark place called prison for all those years. But what I really reduced what they were saying to over all these years is that people want the platform, but they don't want the pain that would come with the platform, right? They wanted the interview, but they didn't want the time spent leading up to the interview. Jesus says, faithful in the small things, when no one's watching, And I will give you greater responsibility because you'll be faithful with the bigger things. Verse 11, this one, have we not walked through so many landmines in the book of 1 Timothy so far? And verse 11 is one of those landmines. And I tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, I've read, I've cross-referenced, I've listen to every school of thought, there's nothing you're gonna send me beyond a sermon like this that is going to illuminate me based on some other person's studies. I've read it all, this is my position, this is where I am biblically persuaded, and this is where Landmark is biblically persuaded as a church. In verse 11, the word likewise is similar to the word in verse eight likewise. A word like likewise connects us to the previous section. So whatever is being said here is an additional category. Here's the overseer's qualifications. Verse eight, likewise. Here's the deacon's qualifications. Verse 11, likewise. And then it says this, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. The question which has caused debate over time is this. Does this verse refer to deacon's wives? or is it an introduction to women deacons? That's the two thoughts. Shouldn't it not even be an argument? It says they're wives. (laughs) Well, that's not what it says in the original manuscript, and that's why good studying is helpful. All's it says in the original manuscript is the word gune. Likewise, comma, gune, women. In fact, there's no possessive pronoun in the original manuscript. Remove the word there. This is a sloppy translation. Likewise, gune, women must be reverent. I am biblically persuaded that there's an introduction to the allowance of women serving in the office of deacon, which is where we get the word a deaconess. Likewise, women must be reverent. First case for women deacons, the word likewise, connecting us to the previous description. Number two, no possessive pronoun in the original manuscript. Remove the word their there, and it's the word gune, which means women. Number three, no qualification for elders' wives. Why in the world would there be a qualification for deacons' wives? Number four, Romans chapter 16, verse one, we're introduced to a woman named Phoebe, and it says that she was commended by Paul, who was a sister to him and a deacon of the church. And finally, the deacon role, Since it is not primarily a teaching role, a ruling position, it does not violate Paul's instructions, which we covered in chapter two about women not having doctrinal authority over men in the church. I believe women and the space we would create at Landmark for women to step into the role and office of serving. They are to be reverent, same characteristic, For the males, again, like the male deacons, serious about their faith. They draw respect from others, the way they live out their faith, not slanderers. Of course, this is probably more appropriate for women than men, even though all of us can be slanderous. Women have more of an inclination to be loose-lipped and be slanderous, busybodies talking badly, or the word in Greek, diabolos, diabolical, which is the word that is applied to Satan himself. It's saying, likewise, women, be serious about your faith and don't be she-devils. That's what it says. Temperate, that word means sensible, not over-emotional. Again, I'm not generalizing when I'm saying a woman can be more emotional and emotionally driven than a man. And this requirement is that you are not driven by your feelings when you're serving the church, you're driven by your faith. And there's a sense about you. And then of course, you summarize all of it by saying faithful in all things, trustworthy. This woman is trustworthy. When she's given a task, small, private, or great and public, she's up to the task and she fulfills her duty, not looking for anything in return. Paul would probably, if he's writing this, and I'm thinking he's writing it, he just gets done laying out in chapter two that only men can have authority in the church and women can't which has probably created a lot of controversy and it has over time, which is why in chapter three, he's like, oh, I'm not talking about every man having authority over every woman, only men that are called to the office of overseer and elder, which is the creative order in Genesis chapter one, when man was created first, from man came Eve. So." Don't get your panties in a wad over what I just laid out before you. And oh, by the way, here's some qualifications for those that would serve the church in the office. And he lays out, deacons need to have reverence and they need to be not double-tongued and have pure consciences. And the list goes on. And you can almost imagine, I'm going, wait, are you asking, can women serve in this capacity? Likewise. Yes, women can serve in this capacity. And verse 12, it's like he swings back to his original thought. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. Similarly to the requirement of the elder in the first seven verses, this is not a marital status verse. This isn't, you must be married. This is about sexual integrity. If the man is married, he only has eyes for his wife. He's a one woman man. And of course, if he has children, He runs his house well. So I'll say something I said during the teachings about the elders here. The qualifications required to serve God's house are first measured by the quality of how we serve our house. Where's the first place we look? Our homes. Doesn't matter how we show in person in this place if our home is out of order. Hello, yes, I'm almost done. Give me a couple more minutes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Here's the inheritance. What do I get for serving selflessly? What do I get for serving where nobody sees me? Here's what you get. Those that serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing in the faith and great boldness in the faith. I believe these are two different inheritances. I believe the first can be said like this. Service invites confidence from man. What do I get? The more you serve, the more confidence is given to you by man. I think of my brother Mark Emmon. When I first met him years ago at the church, his first statement to me was, how can I serve you? And for the months and years since, service from Mark has invited confidence from man. So much so that through the years, from the calling that God placed on him and the way that he was shepherding the flock, It was an easy affirmation from the leaders to install him as an overseer, but it all began by selfless service that invited confidence from man. I think specifically about my brother Tommy McKelvey. If you don't know Tommy, you have to get to know Tommy and his wife, Jill. I couldn't shake sharing about Tommy at this particular point. From the moment I met him, he's been a man who was willing to serve wherever needed with any needs that were presented, whether it was lost and found, whether it was here in the sanctuary, whether it was taking chairs and moving them, whether it was stepping up and mentoring younger lives. But not only that, anything that I've ever had need of and I've asked Tommy, I knew, I was confident he was going to give it his all. For example, I don't know about you, but during one of those wind storms not too long ago, my backyard and the the way the fence is designed was like a wind tunnel. So one day when I looked out back, there used to be a trampoline in a certain spot, but it was gone. And I'm like, oh my goodness, where did it go? And sure enough, the trampoline was upside down in my neighbor's yard on his trampoline. (laughs) But it couldn't have got there because there were several trees. So I'm sitting there and I'm dumbfounded and I'm like, I don't know how I'm gonna get it back. So I called my brother, Tommy. I said, listen, man, I don't know what to do. He said, I'll be over in a minute. He came over with a couple helping hands. I'd never seen anything like it. My wife and I were astonished. He went out back, no harnesses, no ropes, He began to climb a tree with his hands and his feet like a bear and he's up in this tree and like he pulled ropes out of his pocket and made a harness and before I knew it, he had my trampoline back in my yard, completely broken, (laughs) not by his doing. That's a silly example, or is it? Because of the way he had served the body of Christ and the way he was willing to say yes when the Lord said, go. His service invited confidence from me that if I ask him to do something, he's going to get it done, no questions asked. But more than that, more than that, service invokes boldness from God. Because when I watch this man receive the calling of God on his life, serving where he is asked to serve with no expectation of anything given in return. I've watched something happen to his faith. I've watched him become more vocal about his faith. I've watched him step out and share his testimony about his faith. I've watched him say, I wanna go on a saint's prison ministry trip to minister to the inmates and share about my faith. I watched him get on stage a couple weeks ago and report back to us about the clarity of the gospel in their lives and in his life from a heart of boldness. Where did that come from? It came from him serving. And every time he said, yes, I'll serve and I'll do, and I don't need anything in return, and I don't want any attention, this is, this is killing him right now, which is another indication of the humility that God has blessed him with. I've watched confidence be given to him by the leaders of this church and I've watched boldness be given to him from God." Now I wanna end by introducing you to Stephen, who was one of the first seven appointed in Acts chapter six. he didn't stay just a servant of tables. Interestingly, as he said yes to that service, you read about him in chapter eight, seven and eight, excuse me, chapter seven, where he is now speaking and preaching with boldness and he becomes what we know as the first martyr, willing to give of his life for his faith, and almost in parallel to the way Jesus died, committing his spirit to God, and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the makeup of the servants of God. So I say to all of us, every Christian is called to be a servant. Some Christians are servants to a calling. Would we all hold to the mystery of the faith from a pure conscience? Would we recognize if we serve well, we will obtain for ourselves good standing and great boldness. Service invites this, service invokes this. We need to serve so that our King Jesus can be glorified. Dear church, this is your charge. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it this morning, By God's grace, let us do it. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your word was proclaimed and that it would be sealed upon our hearts and we would be activated to be servants to your cause. This is my prayer for your glory, honor, and praise. Amen.